Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Let's stand up and begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, uniting our hearts and our intentions together, let us pray in the words our Savior gave us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Almighty God, pour out your blessings upon us this night, upon our Holy Father, upon all the bishops, upon our parishes, our friends and loved ones. Help this year of faith to truly be a year of faith and grace through Christ our Lord. St. Ambrose, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father Fisher. I want to begin by, by thanking Father Fisher and all the members of the community here at St. Ambrose for opening the door to the Institute of Catholic Culture so that we can come here and offer these educational programs. For those that are here with us for the first time, I'm Deacon Sabatino. I'm the founding director of the Institute of Catholic Culture. We have a mission of going to parishes just like St. Ambrose and offering adult education programs at no charge to the parish and no charge to attendees. And not just any adult education programs, the best adult education programs with the best speakers as we have tonight. Tonight, we open, as you know, the door of faith as the Holy Father opens that door and invites us to walk through that door of faith with him for this special year. And for this special year, he has given some very clear instructions about what he would like to see going on in our parishes, in our church. You only need to open up the documents to be able to read them. You can find them right on the Institute's website in our Learning Center. He has said that this year marks the 50th anniversary of the Second Vatican Council. And the Second Vatican Council, sadly, unfortunately, many times is misinterpreted and a hermeneutic of discontinuity is brought to the interpretation of the text. Trying to say that it is a breaking from tradition, and nothing could be further from the truth. He has asked the church then to reflect upon the teachings of the Second Vatican Council within the light of the tradition of the church, so that we can understand in the teachings and insights of the fathers of the council to give them their proper interpretation. He's asked us to do that, and so we're going to do it at the Institute of Catholic Culture. We have three programs planned, and I want you to open your brochures that you have there in front of you. So there's a lot of text there. I want you to open it all the way up and find our curriculum for the coming year. The lighter tan boxes that you see is our standard curriculum. The ancient and biblical world, right at the top, you'll see that. That's the subject area in which we will be applying that subject area to a specific topic. Dr. O'Donnell will be concluding our first quarter this year with tidings of great joy, revealing God's plan for the incarnation. What does that mean? He's going to be coming to speak with us about the Greeks, about the Romans, and how God was preparing the whole world for the moment of the incarnation. We're going to walk through this entire ancient world from now till December 15th. We've got a lot of talks planned. But as I said, the Holy Father has asked us to reflect upon the teachings of the Council. And so you'll see on a number of your disciplines there, a starred year of faith under philosophy. If you come over, you'll see Fides et Ratio. We have a number of talks on faith itself. We just found out that most likely the Holy Father will release his next encyclical letter on faith in January. We'll be studying what is faith and what is its role in a rational world? But if you come down here also to sacred scripture, and the first slot there under Old Testament, you see an introduction to sacred scripture, you say Dei Verbum. I'm going to be presenting a program on the document of the Second Vatican Council on the Word of God. 
You come over two more under Acts and Epistles, you'll see faith alone. Again, a proper understanding of faith in the Epistle to the Romans. And I'm going to come all the way down then to Catechetic, second from the bottom, and you'll see Credo in Unum Deum, a study of the Creed of Catholicism. We open that series tonight. That is a series which is going to last not only in this first quarter, but throughout the entire year. Father Scalia, who is with us here tonight to introduce the creed to us, has agreed to give us an in-depth study, a 13-part series stretching from today to next October on the Nicene Creed. You'll see also Lumen Gentium, the next one over on Church and the Sacraments. Lumen Gentium, the light of the world, the nature of the church. We will be studying the council's teaching on the nature of the church. Uh, And I'm going to come all the way over to the right under moral life, under catechetics, dignitatis humanae, and the dignity of man, religious liberty, and freedom of conscience. We are going to be studying the councils of the church within the context of tradition. Okay, number two. He has asked us also for the 20th anniversary of the publishing of the Catechism of the Catholic Church to reflect again upon this wonderful text. How many have read through the entire Catechism of the Catholic Church? Okay, leave your hands up. You are a select few, and I think most of you are converts. Okay? It's about time that we stop reading the New York Times and we start reading the teachings of the church. If we want to love Jesus more, if we want to love our church more, we have to come to know the faith. And so we're going to be studying the faith. And when he's studying the catechism, and that's why Father is going to be coming and giving this in-depth series on the creed which I think we're going to be able to give out to those that are seeking the truths of our faith. To say, here, here's where you're going to learn the truth about the teachings of the Catholic Church. And finally, the Holy Father has asked us that once we know the faith, we better start standing up in the public square to proclaim it so that Catholics become an army again. Okay, an army that is going out into our society, into the job place, and into the grocery stores, and onto the airplanes, and so forth, and preaching Christ to everyone we meet. And so we've introduced this year not only history, and philosophy, and theology, and scripture, and liturgical studies, and literature, but you'll see there are three from the bottom, the discipline of Catholic political theory, which we've now introduced into our academic schedule. We have four programs this year on Catholic political theory. The first one, Concepts of Corruption, Plato's Perspective on Forms of Government. We will be studying seven days before the presidential election. As I said, you can not only know the faith, you have to live it. I didn't say it. That's the Holy Father saying that. And so our cultural experiences that we offer at the Institute are vital to our mission. They're essential to our mission. I'm way over time. You know our speaker tonight. He needs no introduction. I will just say this, that the bishop has just appointed him to a very special position within the diocese to have a special relationship with the priests of our diocese. And I can imagine no better man for the job to build up the faith of our priests as they lead us on to the kingdom of God. Please join me in welcoming Father Paul Scalia. Sabatino would have made a great missionary of charity because of this. Whenever they ask a priest to come and do something, they only tell about part of it, okay? And and, and once he bites, then they set the hook and they reel him in for for, for more. So um, I thought I was giving 12 talks. I'm giving 13, okay? So, okay, what's one more? So today begins uh, with the Holy Father... It's called the Year of Faith. And kind of like Lent, which is more than 40 days, uh, the Year of Faith is more than a year. What is the purpose of this year? Why has our Holy Father established this, set this year aside? As Sabatino pointed out, it coincides with the beginning of the Second Vatican Council and the promulgation of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Holy Father calls it in the document Porta Fidei, 
uh, the door of faith, establishing the year of faith. He calls it a summons to an authentic and renewed conversion to the Lord. And so right there, it's a call to interior conversion, not just sort of thinking about things, but to conversion. He goes on, reflection on faith will have to be intensified. To rediscover the content of the faith that is professed, celebrated, lived, and prayed, and to reflect on the act of faith is a task that every believer must make his own, especially in the course of this year. Let me just, that's paragraph nine, by the way. Let me just point out two aspects of that sentence that sort of frame my talk for this evening. To rediscover the content of the faith, the content of the faith that is professed, celebrated, lived, and prayed, and to reflect on the act of faith. So these two, these two aspects of faith, these two dimensions, there's the content of faith that we are to rediscover and the act of faith that we are to reflect upon. These two dimensions of faith really at, are at the heart of the year of faith. He goes on, I would like to sketch a path intended to help us understand more profoundly not only the content of the faith, but also the act by which we choose to entrust ourselves fully to God in complete freedom. There it is again. Not only the content of faith, but the act by which we choose to entrust ourselves. And so the first thing, the year of faith, is a movement ad intra, as we say, to the interior life to reflect on the content of faith and the act of faith by which we entrust ourselves to God. From that will flow a bearing witness to the faith, uh, which the Pope's document also talks about. But before we rush into that, we need to first interiorize more deeply, more profoundly, both the content and the act of faith. And so with this lecture and subsequent ones, whether they be 12 or 13, um, I hope to accomplish both, to bring about a greater understanding of the content of faith and the act of faith. I intend to confirm what you already believe, and please God, deepen your understanding of it, so that by understanding it more, you can give yourself to it more. And also, so that in grasping it more profoundly, you can bear witness to it as well. And the instrument for this will be the Catechism of the Catholic Church, because the Holy Father said so, and because it is, of course, the most apt instrument. He writes, the year of faith will have to see a concerted effort to rediscover and study the fundamental content of the faith that receives its systematic and organic synthesis. Make note of that word, organic. And if I don't come back to it, Remind me. Organic synthesis in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In this year, then, the Catechism of the Catholic Church will serve as a tool providing real support for the faith, especially for those concerned with the formation of Christians, so crucial in our cultural context. So, bring your catechisms, okay? read your catechism, and make sure, by the way, that your catechism is up to date, which might sound a little odd, but in the drafting of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it was sort of a clunky process that witnesses to why everyone should know Latin. Let me explain. It was written first in French. That was the working language of the committee that was drafting the Catechism. And then from French, it was translated into many other modern languages. And then after that, it was put into the Latin. But when it was put into the Latin, several changes were made because the Latin is the official text. And so that was the last chance to tighten up on things, and they did. And then after it was put into Latin, it was then retranslated into all modern languages and then published again. I'm thinking the publishers may have had something to do with this. They just, you know, made money. <laughs> but make sure that it is the copyright 1997, not 1994, okay? 
It's not a huge deal, but there are just enough differences for people to make mischief. The Vatican made changes for a reason. What I will be speaking about this evening and in the course of my talks in the coming months is the creed. The creed is the first part of the catechism for a reason. It's not haphazard. We first have to receive the structure of reality. We first have to know what is true. The catechism is divided up into the creed, the sacraments, morality, and prayer. Before we can appreciate the sacraments and what they bring to us and how we are to worship, we first must know what is true. And then, likewise with morality, in order for us to live according to the truth, we must know what is true. And so also, again, with prayer. In order for us to pray to the triune God, we must know who he is and what he has done. And so the creed is the basis of all the others. And that's why we're giving special emphasis to it. And also, of course, that is our introduction to the faith. It is our profession of faith, and it is a nice little summary of the Catholic faith. And so it's within this context that we start this series with the talk, Creed or Chaos? I'm stealing that title. I'm not very creative. The title comes from a Dorothy Sayers book, which I recommend to you. She's Anglican, at least when she wrote it, but it nicely gets at uh, much of what the Holy Father has been writing about even before he was the Holy Father. Creed or chaos describes our situation quite nicely. Either we will have a creed and assent to the creed, or we will have chaos. This is what the Pope sees, and this is why he's established the year of faith, especially in the Western world we see the loss of a creed. And the loss of the creed means not the loss of faith, but the distortion of it, which is even worse. Remember Chesterton's great observation. When people stop believing in God, it's not that they will believe in nothing, it's that they will believe anything. That is more and more our situation. Returning to the two dimensions of faith that I mentioned, the content and the act of faith, uh, I'd like to invoke the Holy Father's image that he uses for the year of faith. He talks about the door of faith through which we must enter. It's an apt image. A door, obviously, or doorway, something through which someone enters. It is designed for that purpose, and it is designed for us as persons. It is an entrance to something, in this case, it's our entrance into communion with God. And so there's something very personal about it, something that we must do. We must enter through that door. And yet, it is something objective, something that has its own structure to it. And we can't change it. We must enter through the door as it is, not as we would like it to be, not as we would have it be more comfortable or more to our liking but as the door is. It has certain dimensions, a certain structure, and it is through that that we enter into communion with God. And so it is with our faith. It is the way by which we enter into communion with God, but there's a certain structure, objective truth about it, and we cannot change that in order to fit our own wants. And so this is all to speak of the faith as both subjective and objective. Subjective meaning there is something about the faith that requires something of me as the subject. I am the one making the act of faith. The, one of the great changes in the translation of the Mass, of course, was in the Creed. Instead of saying, we believe, now we say, I believe, which is more faithful to the Latin, and also just more faithful to what the act of faith is. I don't know what you believe. I hope you believe the right thing. But I know what I believe, and in order for me to make the act of faith, I have to do it. You can't do it for me. We can't just say we believe, but I believe. There's this subjective aspect to it. And then the objective. There is something that is true apart from me. I don't determine what it is. It is there ahead of me. It precedes me. And I have to not just respect it, 
but reverence it and indeed give it proper worship. This is what the Holy Father means by the act of faith and the content of faith. Theologically, the fides qua and the fides qua. Colloquially, we could put it this way. Have faith and keep the faith. Those two phrases. Have faith means, well, that's something personal and interior. A decision, an act of the will that you have to make. And keep the faith, well, that refers to a certain content, a certain objective truth that we must maintain. So let's turn first to the subjective dimension of the faith, the act of faith. It is a human act by which we entrust ourselves to God. It is an act of the will. It's not an emotion. Uh, It's not a feeling. It's an act really of entrustment. Cardinal Ratzinger, now going by another name, uh, in uh, one of his most famous books called Introduction to Christianity, which is a reflection on the creed, he says that the credo, or I believe, could also be translated, I hand myself over to. That's what it means to believe. It is intensely personal. I hand myself over to the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and everything that is said about them. The Latin word credo means this. means I believe, I entrust myself to, I confide myself to this. Credo also is the root of our word credit. When the nice person at the bank gives you a line of credit, he is entrusting or confiding something to you. He trusts in you. He has faith in you. Only in a mercantile financial sense, because he's done a background check and everything, and find that you're trustworthy that way. But still, that helps us, who live in a mercantile culture, to understand what it means to believe to hand to credit something, to to hand ourselves over because we found this person, or in our case, these three persons, as completely worthy of trust and of our entrustment of ourselves to them. I mentioned that it's a human act. Let's linger on that a little bit. This means first, and I'll come back to later, that the act of faith is an act that engages those dimensions of us that distinguish us as human, our intellect and our will most of all. More on that later. For now, allow me to suggest that it's a human act in another way. In this way, we are designed to have faith. We are designed as humans to entrust ourselves and our lives to something, and rather, even more, to someone. Society and history bear witness to this. Man is always believing in something, having faith in something. We will believe in something. We're designed for it. And so the Catechism says, paragraph 28, in many ways throughout history down to the present day, men have given expression to their quest for God in their religious beliefs and behavior, in their prayers, sacrifices, rituals, meditations, and so forth. That is throughout history and throughout the world still today. These forms of religious expression, despite the ambiguities they often bring with them, in other words, some of them aren't quite right, are so universal that one may call man a religious being. Just so. We are created for the purpose of believing, of entrusting ourselves ultimately to God. But we have this instinct, this intuition, that we are to do this. We also know that we can do this in a very bad way. This religious instinct of man can go grossly astray and lead to the most abominable practices. When the Carthaginians practiced human sacrifice, it was the religious instinct gone astray. It was this felt need to entrust ourselves, to give ourselves to someone or something, but it had gone off track, terribly so. So also with the human sacrifice of the Aztecs. And today, 
of Islam's suicide bombers, another form of human sacrifice gone astray. So something more is needed than just this religious instinct. Something more is needed. Because from within us, we seek and we reach out for something, for someone. We're always searching for that door through which we enter into a communion of someone we sense is there, but we do not know how to get there. Without a clear door, we have chaos. Or, to put it in other terms, the act of faith needs an object. It needs an object. To say, I believe, is not enough. There needs to be a direct object that completes that sentence. Let me put it in these terms. I think the ladies here might understand this better, but I think it'll be accessible to all. Imagine a young man takes out the woman he loves for a nice romantic dinner. Italian, of course. <laughs> it's a nice romantic evening. Candlelight, red wine, so on. Towards the end of the dinner, he reaches across the table, takes her hand in his, looks deep into her eyes, and says, I love. Okay. She wants that sentence completed, okay? There needs to be a direct object there, okay? I love what? I love, I love, I love this tiramisu. It's, it's, it's great. Or I love the waitress. So we see the direct object determines the act of faith. What we believe in determines how we believe. It is not enough to say, I believe, any more than it's enough to say, I love. Depending on how I complete the sentence, I love, well, it can be different forms of love. I love my mother. I, I love pasta. Uh, I love God, but I love them all differently. So also, when we say, I believe, what is it? What is the content of faith that helps to shape the act of faith? It is not enough to say, I believe. I believe what? I believe I can fly. I believe children are the future. And other songs that have, you know, I believe something or other. Um, without the object, the content, without that made clear, the act of faith becomes an errant missile. It is launched, and we don't know where it's going to land. And it lands on some very, very silly things. Many horrendous crimes have been done because that errant missile has landed in the wrong place. So how do we avoid this chaos? How do we avoid the mistake of launching the act of faith, but in no clear direction? Now we come, of course, to the second dimension, the objective dimension, the content of faith, what we believe. It is the creed that keeps us from chaos. It is the creed that keeps us from chaos. This might be counterintuitive to many, because I would say most people in our society object to creeds. No one's going to tell me what to believe. Uh, people object to creeds because, as they will argue, the creeds, religious teaching, these are the things that lead to violence and division and war. So people want to get around these things, to just focus on getting along, doing good, and being spiritual. The creeds, they will contend, get in the way of all of this. Let's set aside the creeds, set aside the dogma and the doctrine, and let's just focus on being spiritual, uh, doing good, being good people. You've all heard it, I'm sure. I pray that you've never said it. I am spiritual. I'm just not religious. When I hear that, I think, and if God doesn't stop me, I say, well, the devil is spiritual. In fact, he's, he's pure spirit. Something more is needed. Something more is needed than just being spiritual. The object of faith shapes the act of faith. 
And so in order for the act of faith to be in accord with reality, in order for it to be salvific, it needs to be fashioned by the creed. That needs to be the object because that leads us, of course, to God. And so the creeds, and here, of course, I mean the creeds of the Catholic Church, and there are many of them. Most of us are familiar with the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And when I hear people get them confused, I'm usually edified because it means that they've got both of them rattling around in the mind somewhere. <laughs> uh, but there's the Athanasian Creed and then other various creeds from the ancient church. There's the, the Credo of the People of God, one of the best, actually, by Paul VI, written for his year of faith back in 1967, as Pope Benedict makes note of. In Greek, the creed is called the symbol of faith. The word symbol comes uh, from the Greek words symbolein, which means to throw together, to bring together, or to unite. And the catechism talks about this. It says, the Greek word symbolon meant half of a broken object, for example, a seal presented as a token of recognition. The broken parts were placed together to verify the bearer's identity. The symbol of faith, then, is a sign of recognition and communion between believers. Symbolon also means a gathering collection or summary. A symbol of faith, or creed, is a summary of the principal truths of the faith and therefore serves as the first and fundamental point of reference for catechesis. So the creed, the symbolon, brings together what we believe into one statement. Symbolein in Greek, and it sort of counters diabolein, which is where we get the word diabolical. The evil one is throwing things apart. He is accusing people. He is setting people at odds. That's what diabolein means, is to throw something against, really kind of to throw things apart by making accusations. He specializes in division. The creed, the symbolane, brings things together. God is always bringing about unity, but unity as an organic whole. So let's now turn to the specifics about the act of faith and the content of faith, following the path of the catechism, as the Pope has asked. Paragraph 143 says, By faith, man completely submits his intellect and his will to God with his whole being, man gives his assent to God the revealer. And then later, paragraph 150, faith is first of all a personal adherence of man to God. At the same time and inseparably, it is a free assent to the whole truth that God has revealed. With his whole being, personal adherence. It's a submission of our intellect and will. It is an acceptance of what God has revealed because we find him, the revealer, to be trustworthy. And so it is a human act. Animals do not have faith. They are not capable of that. We make an act of the will to accept what God has revealed as true, to conform our minds to it. And when we do that, our faith becomes a form of knowing. And so faith is not contrary to human dignity. Actually, it depends on human dignity. It depends on what distinguishes us as human. Faith and understanding is another aspect that comes up in the catechism. And this is very important for us in our culture, our society, to keep in mind, that faith and understanding ought to go together. They are not opposed to each other. Faith is not contrary to human reason. In fact, the church has always spoken of what she calls motives of credibility. Our Lord's miracles, for example. He performs a miracle not just to wow people, as it's just sort of an amazing party trick, but to show that he has the power to do something and therefore giving them confidence that they can trust his word. If he has the power to do this, then his word must be trustworthy. And also just by our natural reason, we can discern in creation, and even within ourselves, reasons to believe in God, which traditionally, but mistakenly, are called the five proofs for the existence of God. They're not proofs the way a scientist has proofs. 
They are motives of credibility. They are things that lead us up to that point where we can more peacefully and joyfully and generously make an act of faith. But faith also desires to know more. We believe and then we strive to understand. And so let me give a little exegesis here of Luke chapter 1 as regards faith and understanding. And I apologize to those of you who were ever in my RCIA class. I know at least one of you is here. The archangel Gabriel appears to two people in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah and the Blessed Virgin Mary. And to each he brings extraordinary news. To Zechariah he says, your wife who is older and has never been able to conceive is going to conceive and bear a child in her old age. And to Mary, of course, he gives even more astounding news. You will become a mother while remaining a virgin. And by the way, your child will be the son of God. (laughs) Zechariah's response is what? He says, how am I to know this? Well, how about if an archangel comes and like, stands right in front of you? Okay. Um, how, how, would that work? Okay. In other words, Zechariah's attitude is prove it. Prove it. I won't believe it until you prove it to me. What is Mary's response? It's a little different. She says, how shall this be? In other words, it has the sense of, I accept what you're saying. I trust in this. I have faith. Now, I'd like to understand it a little more. How can this be? How shall this be? Zechariah was punished. It's a good rule of thumb as you go through life. If archangels appear to you, trust them, okay? (laughs) Our lady is rewarded for her question. So one of the stereotypes, of course, of people like, well, me, is that we don't want y'all to question anything, but just, you know, pray, pay, and obey, as they say, (laughs) Um, without neglecting those three things. um, Of course you ought to be asking questions, but asking questions as Mary did, not as Zachariah did. Asking questions because you first believe and you want to understand more. Faith and understanding go together. Related to this is that faith is a form of knowledge. Faith is a form of knowledge. And again, this is contrary to what the world thinks. Thinks that, well, faith is is something that you have because you want to avoid questions. And figuring things out is too difficult for you. No, faith is a form of knowledge, and this is true for any discipline, no matter how lofty. The kindergartner has to trust, has to have a natural faith in his teacher in order to know about reading and writing and arithmetic. If the teacher says, well, this is the letter A, and the kindergartner says, how am I to know this? Prove it. Okay. He's just halted his ability to know and to understand But if he trusts what this trustworthy teacher is saying to him, now he knows more, he can understand more, he'll be able to write. He'll be able to do math. Every discipline has this. And we, we simply say, well, please God, there are good kindergarten teachers. We think God is the greatest teacher. And we find him to be trustworthy. So we will accept what he says. And by accepting that in faith, now we know things that we would not have known otherwise the Trinity, the Incarnation, and so on. The creeds bring to us what we have no way of knowing by our human intellect alone. One of the things that Pope Benedict has been so clear in combating is the modern notion that the only certain knowledge we can ever have is of things that we can quantify or measure or touch or things that are tangible, just the physical world. That's how most people view things. It's not real. It's not true unless somehow scientifically I can quantify it or measure it somehow. 
And of course, the most important truths in the world can't be accessed by science, but only by philosophy and, most of all, theology and faith. The creeds bring us what we could not have known by our human reason alone. By our human reason, we can reach to a lot of things about God, but the creeds bring us what God himself has revealed. How he is revealed not just through creation, because we can discern his hand in the book of creation, and then in the book of scripture, by which the church means really tradition and the Bible. In that book, we read about things that we could not on our own figure out. So the full revelation of God is not something that we figure out, but something that he does. And he began doing that, well, shortly after we sinned, gradually preparing the way for his son, and that's the Old Testament, his son coming into the world as the fullness of God's revelation, the New Testament, granting us the Holy Spirit, so that we can grasp this, so that we can receive that grace of faith. And the creeds are a summary of God's self-revelation. Self-revelation. God is not just revealing truths that are detached from himself. He's revealing himself. So I spoke earlier about the danger of having a subjective faith without an object of faith. In other words, having the act of faith that has no object to it. That's dangerous. The opposite error is also dangerous to have the content of faith without that personal adherence. To have creeds, dogma, doctrine, catechisms without any personal adherence to God. That becomes, especially in discourse, just clubbing people over the head with a catechism, with truth. We are created for the truth, so the truth should never be spoken in a hostile manner to anyone. The content of faith should always be combined with that personal adherence. And so it is absolutely necessary that the act of faith always have the content of faith as that object but just as necessary that the content of faith always be accompanied by that personal adherence to the Lord. Because the creed is given to us not just so that we can sort of believe in this list of truths, but so that we can believe in the persons about whom these words speak and to whom these words lead us. I think many times Catholics recite the creed as though it's sort of, you know, the standard party line. And maybe even like, you know, this is what we believe and we're better than those guys down the road because they don't believe what we believe and we're better. Making it a point of controversy and creeds very often were written in times of controversy. But the creed is meant to be prayed, not just recited. When you say at Mass or when you begin your rosary, I believe, you are praying. You're not just reciting cold truths. You are praying. You are saying, I hand myself over to the Father. And then you say certain things about the Father. I hand myself over to the Son. And then you describe the Son. I hand myself over to the Spirit. And then you describe Him. And if you do not have that sense of praying to these three persons, then you're in danger of holding the faith as just a cold, lifeless thing. In order for it to be salvific, we need to invest ourselves in it. We need to make that act of faith. The faith, then, is personal. As I said earlier, I can't speak for you. I know what I believe, and I can make the act of faith for myself. I can't make it for you. But at the same time, and this is the wonderful Catholic both and, it is also communal, or in this case, ecclesial. Because before you ever made the act of faith, there was a church believing. There was already a community of faith that believed, that held the deposit of faith, held that content. 
and you received it from them and made it your own, and that became your act of faith. And so these two things need to be kept together as well. This helps to make sense of why we have a church. Our Lord has given us the church and given us the hierarchy to guard the content of faith so that we're not all racing off and professing our own creeds, but we're receiving what the church believes and professing it. St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, when she was on her way to becoming Catholic, Many of her relatives tried to sway her from that. And one of my favorites is a story about, I think, a cousin of hers, perhaps, or maybe a sister, and saying, why do you have to become Catholic? Methodist, I could understand, and the Quakers, they're very nice. But Catholic? You know, the only Catholics in New York City at the time were the dirt poor. And in one of these conversations, St. Elizabeth Van Seton blurts out, I believe everything that the Council of Trent teaches, and I've never read it. (laughs) Okay, how can that be? That is a, a wonderful, wonderful trust that she has in our Lord's church. In other words, she's recognizing the faith that I'm going to profess is not my own creation. It's held by the church, and I'm receiving it and assenting to it and through it to God himself. And so I don't need to parse every single sentence of the Council of Trent. It's enough for me to know that Christ's church teaches this. And by sharing the faith of the church, I have access to God. I walk through the door of faith. It is the church that believes first. We participate in that faith, in that believing, by receiving the creed, assenting to it, and through it to God. A couple of other observations before I conclude, and these are just little nuggets from the Catechism. Paragraph 89. There is an organic connection between our spiritual life and the dogmas. An organic connection between our spiritual life and the dogmas. So many people want to have a spiritual life, but don't want to be bothered by dogma or doctrine. They just think the spiritual life is, I just find a comfortable chair and kind of think about God. Well, chances are you're going to think about him incorrectly unless you have some authoritative guidance there. The dogmas are not a prohibition on the spiritual life. They're the means by which we deepen it. To meditate on the creed would be a good thing. The dogmas should shape our prayer. The Eucharist, the real presence of our Lord there, that is a dogma. And if I don't value that dogma, I'm not going to have any Eucharistic devotion at all. The Trinity is the highest dogma. It's about God himself, his inner life. And when I have that firmly in mind, then I can begin to appreciate what it means, more dogma, that the Trinity dwells in me and I dwell in the Trinity. And so let's not think that talking about the creeds is sort of just this ho-hum thing that has no bearing on the spiritual life. The great spiritual masters of the church were deeply rooted in dogma. The Catechism also talks about the supernatural sense of faith. I like to call this the Catholic gut, the gut instinct. The Catholic gut has another meaning, too. Okay, Um, There's plenty more food back there, by the way. Um, The gut instinct for things. In many years of teaching the faith as a priest, what's occurred to me is that more important than knowing the doctrines in all of their minute details is to cultivate an instinct in accord with the church's teachings, an instinct for what is right. And it's fascinating how many people will uh, ask a question and it usually goes something like this. You know, somebody has said something to them. And they said, but Father, I didn't think that was right because of this, that, and the other. Does that make any sense, Father? And I'll say, well, yeah, not only does it make sense, but you're right on the money. Because they have this, they, they've been nourished by the church. They've been raised in the household of faith. So there's this instinct, there's this sense that is more than just knowledge. It is really wisdom. 
And that is what we should be striving for as well. But we can't get there unless we really start learning and delving into the particulars. I said earlier that the creed, our faith, is organic. We're green, okay, if, if you want to think about it that way. Um, organic in what way? What do I mean by that? Let's not think of the creed as just a jumble of truths that were thrown together. Rather, it is a sumbalan, right? It is something that has been, all these pieces have been brought together and put together to form a whole. Our faith is an organic whole. All of the pieces of it are connected. You tug on one, all of the others move. If you monkey with doctrine, you're going to mess up morality and sacraments and prayer. If you monkey with prayer, you're not going to understand doctrine for much longer. And so on. That is why in the catechism, each paragraph is numbered. Uh, number in bold at the beginning of each paragraph. And then in the margins, the edge of each page, you have marginal notes. You have numbers on the margin. And those are pointing you to other paragraphs in the catechism that touch on the same truth. And it brings out how organic the faith is. It is whole and entire. In Lord of the Rings, uh, in the movie... Such a disservice was done to this scene. It is the confrontation between Gandalf the Grey, not yet the White, and Saruman, these two great wizards. And no, I don't believe in wizards. This is fictional. I realize that. Okay. Um, and Saruman has become evil. And Gandalf is increasing in wisdom. And in the book, it's this very profound discussion, debate that they're having. In the movie, it's reduced to this silly sort of, you know, two old men with magic powers throwing each other back and forth. It was silly. Uh, Saruman has become the kind of man that chops things apart. For him, knowledge is just a means to power. That's all it is. Gandalf is wise, and he understands that all of these things need to remain together as a whole. And he says at one point, when you break a thing apart in order to understand what it is, you have left the path of wisdom. And so when we deal with the creed, we have to have that reverence for it, that all of these things are together because they all lead us to the one God who is whole and entire. The structure of the creeds should be clear. The Nicene and the Apostles' Creed, three parts, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the Apostles' Creed, there are 12 articles of faith, traditionally held to believe 12 articles because of 12 apostles. Each one contributed one. Uh, the symbolon, all these pieces coming together. These two creeds will be our pattern for the coming year. Going through not every single article uh, necessarily one at a time, but addressing the truths that are held in each creed. Be drawing from the catechism, not a word-for-word -word reading of it because... I trust that you can do that on your own. You don't need me to just read to you. But my reflections will be based on the catechism's words so that we can grow to understand the dogmas that are contained there and by so doing to have access to God himself. And so let me close with that. A word about words and how they lead us to God. There's a whole school of thought that says that we can't speak about God that human words are not capable of saying anything true about him. The church rejects this very strongly, and it has from her earliest days. Our human words can speak truth about God, not the entirety. And we're always going to be trying to refine things more, hence a new translation of Mass. But the words do communicate a truth. By assenting to the creed, to the truths that are contained there, we have access to God himself. So let us go to those words, to those creeds, not for their own sake, not just for the sake of the words, not even just for the sake of the dogmas, but for the sake of the persons to whom they lead us. Thank you.
Thank you, Father, and, and thank you again for making this generous commitment of your time over the next year to the Institute of Catholic Culture, <laughs> especially that extra hour I was able to get out of you. I want to share with you one short quotation from the Catechism at the very end of the section on the Creed. There's a quotation from St. Augustine. Uh, I give this to you just a little food for thought as we move forward through the year of faith. St. Augustine says, May your creed be for you as a mirror. Look at yourself in it. See if you believe everything you say you believe. And rejoice in your faith each day. Over the next year at the Institute of Catholic Culture, under the direction of Father Scalia, we will have an opportunity to reflect not only on the nature of God himself, but we who are made in his image and likeness to reflect on who we are as human beings and what God is calling us to. I want to encourage you to go home and don't wait till January 1st to make your commitment to God about how you're going to spend the next year. The Holy Father has placed before us a year of faith. He has opened that door and he has put out his hand and he asks you to take that hand and walk with him through the door of faith. Don't spend the next few months worrying about this or that thing going on in our society. God will take care of that. Worry about the faith and make your commitment now. If you don't have a catechism in your house, go and get it down at Paschal Lamb or from the Pauline Sisters. Get yourself a copy of the catechism and start reading it. And start writing down questions for Father Scalia. We're going <laughs> to... We're going to be with him for 13 hours over the next year, and I intend to make it grueling. And together, we are going to grow in the faith. And when we grow in the faith, we will grow in our knowledge of ourselves and what God is calling us to. And so with that, we're going to take a short break. Okay. And then that's one. And what? what? Oh, the Nats the, the one. one. Okay. Let me let me uh, make let me make a comment about the Nats and also the vice presidential debate we're having tonight. And, and the Steelers game. And the Steelers game. <laughs> we'll bundle them all together. I'll tell you right now. At the beginning of Lent every year, I turn off my radio and I turn it back on at the end of Lent after after Easter. And guess what? They're talking about the same old stupid thing. <laughs> Come on, don't be afraid, because Father Scalia is very nice. <laughs> Questions? Yes. Father, since I understand the Nicene Creed was rather early in the uh, Christian times, why did the Protestant sects not seem to accept that, but accept only the Apostles' Creed? Well, I don't know that that's entirely true. I think a number of Protestant denominations also, the more liturgical ones will say the Nicene Creed as well. You can't say anything univocally about Protestantism because there's so many different denominations or groups. Uh, but many do pray the Nicene Creed. Yeah. The Apostles' Creed, the earlier one, and the creeds were initially for baptism. You would make that profession as you were baptized. And still today, right? In the Godfather, right? So, we know that scene. No, it's still today, when, when a child is brought to be baptized, the parents are asked to profess the faith. And it takes the form of question and answer but it's basically the creed. Okay? And so that's how it came about. It was extended, of course, as years went by in order to clarify things. And that's what the Nicene Creed is about. You know, when somebody comes along questioning the divinity of Jesus Christ, well, then things start getting expanded there. And so they say, well, he is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Begotten, not made. Consubstantial with the Father, okay? which in the Greek is homoousios, not homoiousios. The difference between the two is one iota, literally. It's a difference between, between orthodoxy and heresy. And so that was all put in there in order to make clear the true faith from the heretical Arian faith. So, you know, next time you are a little upset about having to say consubstantial, just, it could be worse. It could be homoousios, okay? <laughs> Thank you, Father. That was, that was, that was great. Um, the, uh, there was a question coming online from uh, 
Red Lion, Pennsylvania. Is that okay? Well, I just hope that that is Steelers, Pennsylvania, not, not <laughs> Eagles, Pennsylvania. Okay. Uh, just it was just a, a practical question about what section of the creed or the catechism you should be reading for next time. You'll see on our website we already have out Father's next part of the series, and this is how you'll see it for the rest of the year. Credo. Okay. I believe in God the Father. So open up your catechism to the section on God the Father and read that. And I would recommend beginning in the beginning and then reading up to that. Father, do you have anything to add to that? It, it will really be just the section on God the Father, which is obviously going to touch on the fatherhood of God, which leads us immediately, of course, to the Trinity. God is Father before he creates us. And then to creation, because the section on the creed, I, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, not seen and unseen, okay? Seen, unseen, okay? No, it's, uh, there are things that are by their nature visible and other things that are by their nature invisible. And so it will be discussion, of course, of God the Father, his fatherhood in eternity, which leads us to the Trinity, and then God the father of creation. Okay, so we'll talk about the creation of man and the fall. The bad news. Okay, okay and we have a question coming in from Massanutten, Virginia. What aspects of American society, Father, do you believe work against us most in our quest to deepen our faith? Our sins. <laughs> what aspects of our culture? Well, you know, keep in mind... Um, you know, the story of Chesterton when he was invited to contribute to a symposium on the question, what's wrong with the world? And he wrote in a two-word response, I am. So it's always very dangerous to say what's wrong, you know, what, what are the things in our culture, our society that um, sort of threaten our faith the most? It's our sins. I mean, that's it. So the first place we have to look is, is at ourselves. But doing that, then when we look uh, at society, we're dealing with a society that is irreligious. And it's at this point, again, that we will not accept anything that can't be proven, that can't be measured or quantified. We don't accept that. We don't think that those things are reasonable. Just today, I heard of a man who, very well-educated man, who uh, accepted that myth about Pope Joan, the myth of this pope named Joan, a, a female pope, and, and um, well-educated man. But when it came to... When it came to matters of, of faith, his reason was set aside. And I think that's what happens a lot in our culture. And when that happens, you have a society that lacks wisdom because it's refusing to acknowledge the things that cannot be seen, the truths that cannot be measured. And then you have an area of faith that is completely unreasonable. That, I think, is probably the biggest threat. Pope Benedict's Regensburg Address speaks to this very nicely, uh, so I would point to that. Okay. Thank you very much for oh, this. No, 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 I have one more thing. Uh, there's one more question here. Okay, yeah, and then I have we can't refute Mrs. Kester. No, no. Okay. Uh, when was the Apostles' Creed written, and when, who wrote it? The tradition is that the Apostles wrote it. When exactly was it compiled? That's not entirely clear. Um, my last contribution here in response to what Sabatino said about silly things. I presume he wasn't including sports, okay? <laughs> and, and I will, will refer to you to, to two great writers, Father Jim Shaw and Anthony Esselin, who both write very well about the importance of sports. And Father Shaw has this wonderful, he actually touches on this in a number of his writings, about the importance of sports. He says that watching a game, maybe not, just, not even just playing it, but watching it, I'm totally speaking to the guys here. Okay, <laughs> Your wives are going to hate me for this. But just watching a game, he says, is a philosophical exercise. Because you're, what are you doing? You're just kind of taking in, you're sort of contemplating and considering uh, something that has its own structure, its own rules, its own way of being that doesn't need to exist. And that's what philosophy does with all of reality. We look at what is. It doesn't need to be, but we try to appreciate and receive and contemplate everything that is. So next Sunday afternoon, keep that in mind, okay?
Well, I respect Father Scalia. Next Sunday afternoon, we will be studying the sacred scriptures. <laughs> and so, I'd like to close with a blessing. Uh, but before that, looking ahead, I'm going to put 17 on the hook because, you know, turnabout is fair play. Uh, maybe in the future, we could conclude these by singing the creed. Okay? Now, it, it, there you go. We've got voices right here at the ready. Okay, good. Uh, that would be good something. We would, it would be in Latin. Come on. <laughs> we want God to understand it. So, okay. <laughs> so, that is something to, to work towards. Okay. Please stand for the final blessing. The Lord be with you. Through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, of St. Joseph, her most chaste spouse, and of St. Ambrose, may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Go in peace. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.